pray for us. Uh, Father, um, what a good morning it is. Um, I'm just grateful to be here. Um, my need for you is evident to me. And uh, it's, a, it's, a good, it's a good place. It's a good place to be. Um, help us now as we investigate Scripture. Uh, for some of us, this is going to be brand new. Uh, for others of us, this may be a reminder. Um, but help us to fully engage and to fully find, um, find you in the midst of this text and in the midst of our lives. Assure us that you're with us, Lord. Uh, in Christ's name we pray, amen. Okay, uh, we've been exploring this series called How People Change. And I facetiously added the word slowly to it. <laughs> and uh, I have to admit, I, I change slowly. So we're looking at uh, the thought that Jesus is our, our bridegroom. He's the one who changes us. We're not changed by Christian principles. We're not changed by a moral resolve. We're changed by a person. And then we're looking at the con idea of the context of change is actually our relationships. We're not changed as individuals sitting under a tree, though that would help and perhaps slow our lives down and be peaceful. Maybe we could read something inspirational. But we're not really changed in as individuals. We're changed when we interact with one another. You know, life in the church is a, is a challenging thing. Uh, uh, we don't get to regulate who comes through the doors. Uh, that includes me. <laughs> well, actually, you vote for a pastor, so I guess you can regulate that a little bit. But uh, it's a challenging thing, isn't it, to interact in the church. Um, and so we need each other uh, to, to, to grow. So who's the person who changes us? Christ. How do we change? We change in the context of relationships. And now we're going to look at the idea of the model. What is the model for change? And so uh, I, I sort of wish I had copied uh, uh, an image for you, but I want you to uh, think about this model, and we're, we're going to talk about it in pretty, pretty good detail today. The model... Um, is going to be looked at, and then we're going to look at Jeremiah and the model in Jeremiah 17, the passage we just read. Then we're going to look at the model um, as it applies to our life and caring, caring, having personal care about the, the change process, getting engaged in it. And then fourthly, I want to talk about a deeper way for deeper, a better way for deep change, a better way for deep change. So the model, Jeremiah 17, some thoughts about our, our engagement in the process, and then really what does it look like to have deeper change in our, in our lives. So in light of uh, this remarkable truth that God is changing us, and he is not waiting around for us, he is moving in toward us with good purposes. He is, his agenda is not for our comfort. His agenda is for us to be conformed to the image of his son. That is his agenda. Um, and God has done a remarkable thing to give us a foundation for change. He has assured us that we are accepted. This is very, very important for us to pause. 
that we are not as Christians trying to gain acceptance and then uh, once we've gained this acceptance then we can then we can start uh, then we'll be okay what God does is he accepts us first through Jesus and that acceptance is so rich and so significant so wonderful that it actually moves us motivates us to become like the one who's accepted us so it's so significant that we've been received by Jesus we were through Jesus we have been we've been brought into a club we don't deserve to be at right we're part at a party we don't deserve to be at but we've been brought in and we learn how gracious and merciful God is so the process of change is religion essentially says I work hard I keep my moral principles I you know adhere to my standards or religious standards and then I hope to be accepted in Christianity you come along and says I'm accepted therefore I obey it's not obey and therefore I'm, I'm accepted it's I'm accepted therefore I obey huge huge thing to to grasp and to think about so the model itself looks like this God takes this world as it really is the Bible is a remarkably realistic book the Bible has all kinds of disorder dysfunction sin the world you read about in the, in the paper or see on the, on the news, that world is in your Bible. The world as it really is, God is working with this world in, his process, in, the, in the model of change for us. So he's using this world as it is. And then God is also interacting with us as fallen human beings and interacting with what we need. He's providing for us what we need to pro make progress in the Christian life. He's interacting with us as fallen human beings, but he is also our redeemer. And in the middle of this, the model that, that how people change is presenting to us is that in the middle of all of this is a redeemer, God, our Lord, our King. We have a redeemer in the middle of all this. So we have a world that's the way it is. We have our fallenness and our struggles, but we also have a redeemer. And then finally, we have the hope that he is progressively changing us and transforming us. There are no hopeless situations, none. So whatever, you, if you find yourself lost this morning, you find yourself sort of a uh, little aimless, or you feel like you're sort of stuck in your own problems and world, there is nothing in your situation that cannot find uh, a hopeful way out, and a hope, hope for you can be restored. Essentially, what we're looking at is, or it's, it's, it's like we're looking at a large map. As a kid growing up in Southern California, we had a large world map. And uh, it was funny because I would just look at this thing and I would stare at this thing and then I'd start sort of tracing parts of it. And there was a time in my life, I probably I don't know if I could do it now, but I was really pretty good at actually sketching. And this is kind of crazy. I was 10 years old, 11 years old. I could actually do a pretty good job sketching the whole world in, in just its, you know, its basic contours. When you look down, maybe downtown Kailua, or you're down some part of the island, you may, you'll see visitors, and they are carrying maps. You can see them carrying their maps. And you can see them walking pretty confidently because they have their maps, right? And the important thing about a map is that it's giving you a big enough picture of where you are so you can orient yourself. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you've been completely lost, and you love that little sign that says, you are here. <laughs> it's like, oh, thank you, whoever thought of that. I cannot figure out where I am in this picture, but I, oh, I can see that. And then 
I can orient myself to the next thing that's closest. So what, what God's doing here is he's giving us a model, a way, a map of how to understand where we are. And we often get lost in our own stories. We get lost in the moment, and we can't see the bigger picture of, what, of what's going on. The bigger picture is that God is taking you and all the events of your life and all the details of your life, and he is moving them masterfully forward because of his remarkable love and his plan for you. So now in Jeremiah 17, we have a remarkable moment in Judah's history. Now, some of you will remember your, your Bible history and what happened was that there were there were sort of two parts of God's people at the time. There was a northern kingdom called Israel, and there was a southern kingdom called Judah. So if you're reading in your Old Testament, sometimes you'll hear references to Israel and then Judah, and there's prophets who are sent to, to one part, and there's prophets who are sent to another part, and then there's prophets who are sent to both parts, and this thing is kind of uh, a little... Not necessarily confusing, but you've got to watch carefully what's going on. Little Judah is all around Jerusalem, uh, two, two tribes roughly. And these folks hung on longer than the, older, than, the, than the folks in the north. Israel in the north was taken out by Assyria, a big kingdom, in 722 B.C. Now, the southern kingdom hung on longer in, until about 586 B.C. Now, the southern kingdom was supposed to learn from the northern kingdom of their hardness of heart, their turning to idols, their trusting in alliances with foreign nations, and, they, and the southern kingdom was supposed to learn these things. Well, the southern kingdom eventually didn't learn these things. And so what God had promised was there would be an invasion of a ruthless people and this invasion happened, they're called the Babylonians, sometimes called the Chaldeans. So in Jeremiah's day, he's called the weeping prophet, nicknamed that, because Jeremiah can, he is lamenting the truth that it's really going to happen. Sometimes prophets would speak about something in the future, and it was kind of a if-then kind of thing. Well, if you repent, then God might relent. But as the event gets closer, as the event gets closer, if it's within 20 years, within, within 18 months, then there's a certainty that the event's actually going to happen. And Jeremiah writes with certainty. And that's why he's weeping, because he knows the Babylonians, he knows the Babylonians are coming. So in the middle of all this, little Judah is being spoken to by Jeremiah. And what, what happened was the last kings of Judah were making deals, particularly with Egypt. And so you have this statement um, in verse 5 of Jeremiah 5, and here's how it reads. You have it right there in your worship folder. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. Historical context, they turn to Egypt. They turn to alliances with other, king, with other kings, other kingdoms. And then what does it mean to make flesh your strength? Well, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like, verse 6, and now we have a comparison of a kind of a thorn bush, a, a shrub bush. Um, he is like a shrub in the desert. Um, 
and he shall not see any good come. It's interesting that this is a the image of a shrub. This particular uh, desert shrub was worthless. It didn't produce, produce any seeds that were worthwhile, and it didn't produce any fruit that was worthwhile. And so the, the, the Jews of the day considered whatever this kind of shrub was, it was just worthless. It had no real, um, no real purpose. Verse 6, he is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. So the metaphor is the person who has turned away from the Lord is like a non-productive or a shrub brush or as in uh, the book How People Change, they describe this as a thorn bush, okay, a thorn bush. Now that's the, that's the negative side. Now verse 7, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear. Notice fear is the core, the core issue. When heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. So there's a, a tree deeply rooted. Uh, the imagery comes from Psalm chapter 1. You've seen this perhaps in other places in the Bible. So someone who is trusting in the Lord is like a, a tree well watered. And when stress comes, when there's a lack of water, um, they produce something that is uh, remarkable, unexpected. When there is heat, when there is difficulty, when the surrounding air, uh, the surroundings of the tree uh, are not providing what the tree would need, this tree actually produces fruit. So surprising fruit in the midst of the desert. And then there's a comment about verse not, uh, about the heart, verse 9. This is one of the most famous, by the way, uh, and I say famous, I mean it's one of the most important passages on sinfulness. Uh, and you, if you come across the term total depravity, well, here it is. Here it is. Verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all else, all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. It does seem that the heart can be understood, but only on the other side <laughs> when, when you, the consequences are felt. Um, God is testing the heart, and then we, we can see kind of what the heart produces. Verse 9 connects with verse 5. Verse 9 connects with verse 5. In other words, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. Then drop down to verse 9. The heart is deceitful. What do I mean by this? It means that these are, these are people who are in Judah. This is, these are redeemed people. This means that they have been purchased out of you know, slavery to Egypt. They're God's people. And yet God speaks to them, and he addresses their hearts as unreliable, desperately unreliable places uh, within them. In fact, the, the term desperately sick can be also translated incurable, incurable. So there's something traveling through our, our, our sinful choices and desires that is antithetical to trusting in God. We need an intervention. So that is what God is saying is that the, the, the one who trusts in the Lord 
who experiences the heat of their, of their circumstances is actually being empowered by the Lord to do what is difficult and impossible. And the one who trusts in man, the one who trusts in flesh, is actually in, engaging in, um, in, in a sinful uh, pattern that is uh, the heart is resisting yielding to God. Well, this is the condition that we find ourselves in as, as those who are Christians. We identify with this heart. This heart is needs to be known by us. It needs to be understood by us. We need to understand ourselves. There's a, an aspect of us that is deceptive and deceitful and desperately sick. So, in what way are we incurable? In what way are we incurable? Because this really is sort of contrary to how we've been taught or raised in our days. We've been taught that we're pretty special. Uh, we've been raised in a culture that is, uh, you know, we're after high, high esteem in our children. We want to feel good about ourselves. This is actually quite uh, contrary to how we've all been raised. Um, the heart is in this incurable place because it cannot turn to any other place except some aspect of this creation. We cannot turn by ourselves to trusting in, in God. We are incurably leaning to some part of this creation. And so the heart is having a difficult time turning away from its natural bent. Now, I'll give you a story, a little, little moment in my life. Um, I was uh, I had a uh, a wart on my next to my thumb, uh, my thumbnail, thumbnail right near the thumbnail, and I went to a dermatologist and uh, he I, I encouraged him to just deaden this thumb like crazy, and he looked at me and he says, "Okay, I'll take care of it," uh, and so then I hand him my thumb after he's deadened it, you know, and I and he can tell from my face. I'm going through all these histrionics because he's about to drill into my thumb. And he's looking at me, and he had looked over my file before, and he knew I was clergy. So he, in his own little way, said, while he's about to drill into my thumb, says, you know you can always pray. And I said, yeah, that's, that's a good idea. You see, in, the, in a moment like that, my heart was not connected to trusting. In a moment like that, I had figured out, you know, what I had to do on my own. And this is the, a small little picture of what it's like to be a human being in this fallen world. And what we need is we need an outside intervention. And it's powerful, and it's real, and it's good. We need intervening grace that there can be trust in God. So, what is, the, what is the model? The model is simply this. Jeremiah says that a drought's coming and heat is on the way to the little plant in the out in the wilderness. So, heat is always going to be present in our lives. Heat. There's always going to be something of your circumstances something of your situation 
something in your life that's going to be something you would not choose, something that's unpleasant, something that you don't like. Uh, it can be anything, anything from simple to boredom to, uh, to, to any number of other things. You can have amazing amounts of disconnect, uh, of, dis, uh, of, of uh, dissatisfied about your situation. Heat is coming. Something about your family, something about your job, something about your church, something about something. There's heat, an expectation, a want, a desire. And the model then comes along and says, now either your heart is going to be engaged by faith in that moment, and you're going to produce fruit consistent with that faith, or your heart will be engaged in unbelief at that moment, and you'll produce thorns and bitter fruit. Your heart is always active. Your heart is always engaged. Your heart is not neutral. Our heart is always moving, seeking, trying to find pleasure, trying to find relief. And so we need to care deeply about the change process. What this means is that when we open up our Bibles, we begin to see ourselves in there. We begin to see how we should be responding. We, should, we see the fruit that should be evident in our lives. And we, to care about the change process is actually noticing how we're responding to the heat in our lives. I notice for me a lot of reactivity. There's a lot of reactivity in me. On my sabbatical, I was able to kind of see it for my, for see it in a new way. That I was often reactive to my situation and to people. And uh, I, I learned that I was not responding to the heat um, that well. So I had an anxious heart, and I, I sort of habituated to that anxious heart. In the moment that the heat comes, you have to engage certain truths. You have a redeemer. You've been given forgiveness of sins. You're okay. This heat will not define you. This difficult situation is not going to be the final definition of who you are. In fact, you've already passed through the most amazing heat that ever could, could visit upon a person. You've passed through the judgment of God. And uh, you will not be judged. Um, now, let that be a counterbalance in your life. Let that have some weight in your life when you're encountering something difficult. So no threat, no uncomfortable circumstance, no opinion, no judgment can change God's mind and his commitment to you. So this is much more than just plowing through with a sense of responsibility. Well, honey, we're going through a difficult time, and I'm just going to just, you know, by the power of my will, we're just going to plow through it. It's very different. It's a heart that's actually engaging in God in the resources that are available in the cross. So the heat will always be there. Will always be something. It can it can be an external thing, but it also can be an internal thing. It can actually feel like something negative, but it also can be also a blessing, or something that looks like a blessing. Have you ever heard about these lottery winners and all the disaster that happens to them, and all the lawsuits that happen to them, or the or the way they spend their money? In other words, they they've won millions of dollars, and what happens? Are they happier? Not necessarily. I'm saying, well, I don't know. I'd like to try that, you know, <laughs> right? But isn't it funny? I mean, and I've often in the book they say, well, blessings and things that look like uh, something good can actually be part of the heat as well. 
And I've, I've wrestled with that. Is that, is that really, really true? How can that be? So as we encounter the heat, we're responding either with belief or unbelief. But there are resources to help you respond. And so what we want to be as believers is joyfully discontent. We want to look at scripture and we see what, we, what we're called to be and we are a template of, of the kinds of things God calls us to be and we realize that we have been avoiding these things, we have not cared about this good fruit, we have not sought this kind of good fruit, and we realize that we need to engage the change process. God's outside intervention is available for us. So we're taking our incurable heart to task with the one who can cure our heart, which is Jesus. So scripture is like a map, and it shows us the big picture of what God's up to in our lives. Scripture is like a window. It's showing us, giving us a picture of where we're going. Scripture is like a shovel, and it digs deep into the deeper motivations of our life. And so I always need to evaluate myself in light of what God says about me, my world, and the change that I'm called upon. The Bible's honesty about life in this world invites me to be honest about my difficulties and my responses to them. And I need to learn how to examine myself using the simple categories of heat, thorns, cross, and fruit. You see it there in your worship. And then, of course, we all can become counselors. See, we can all become counselors because you know people who are going through heat. They are experiencing heat. You see what the heat is doing to them, how they're responding. And we want to be a hopeful people to give them hope. And a significant aspect of a wise and helpful ministry is to help others see themselves from, this, from the perspective of these biblical categories and that there are no hopeless situations. So let me encourage you with a deeper, a better way for deep change and then, I, then I'm done. You know, all of us in the PCA have been uh, have highly or heavily influenced by uh, one we call Uncle Tim, um, Tim Keller. Um, he has been so thoughtful about renewal, the renewal of the Christian heart and uh, so Tim Keller talks about deep change in one of his uh, presentations. And he basically says that deep change happens when you convict yourself with your joys. It's not just that you, you, you put pressure on your will. It's not just that you put sort of a, a moral resolve. It's you convict yourself with your joys. Because if you don't, what he means by this is that you think carefully and long about the privileges you have in Christ. And the motivation is not anything less than, thank you, Lord, I see what you've done for me, therefore I'm, I act this way. So convict yourself with your joys. He says if we have a lot of pride and we want the esteem of other people, he says this, oh Lord, when I fall into pride, on the cross, you made yourself of one without pride. When I think about 
how I turned to other people to build my self-esteem. I think about all that you did in order to rescue me. Or how about pride and coldness toward others? In the garden when we, when we, we went to sleep on you, you were patient and you were attentive to us. Lord, when I fall into coldness and irritability with people, I remember this, that in the garden before you died, you were so gentle and affirming of us when we went to sleep on you. On the cross, when you were giving yourself to people who mocked you. The more I think about this, it melts my heart, the hardness of my heart. It makes me able to be patient to the people around me. And then finally he says, O oh Lord, when I fall into anxiety and fearfulness, I remember you faced the most astonishing dangers for me. You were torn to pieces so bravely for me. You were torn to pieces so I could be utterly loved and eternally safe in you. The more I thank you for that, the more I find myself getting calm because I don't have to prove myself anymore, and that gives me the kind of courage I never had before. So what we're doing is we're convicting ourselves with our joys, thinking through, understanding more deeply the Savior who came for us. The change process happens through new affection, a new affection for Christ. So let's think on these things and uh, let's consider the Lord's Supper as we consider the greatness of this change process that God has uh, begun in us. Let's pray. Father, for uh, your people now, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for the work that is possible because your spirit is in us. Father, for the the love and the joy and the patience and the long-suffering for the kinds of things that you're working in us. I, I thank you for that. Thank you that there are no truly hopeless situations. Father, thank you for your remarkable work among my friends, that you are at work. And so we, we raise to you our praise and our thankfulness. We ask that you'd help us to see more clearly what it means that you have gone to the cross for us. Give us that security. Give us that foundation. Give us that, that, that firm place where we can live and find shelter. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Amen.